everyone. Your host, Kirk Hamilton, here with a new conversation that I think you're all really going to enjoy. I recently sat down with Emily Reese, who is a pianist, trumpeter, a radio and podcast host, who, along with her co-producer, Sam Keenan, hosts the wonderful music podcast Level with Emily, where she focuses on video game music and has on guests from all over that particular and very fascinating musical world. Back when I was more in that world, the world of video games, I would always see Emily at conferences, moderating panels with some of the biggest names in video game music. She's been in that scene for a very long time. She knows everyone, and her show is really great. Level with Emily. You should go listen to it if you like strong songs. You can just look through their archives. There are so many different guests from all across the world of video game music. And uh, one of those guests was actually me a few years ago. And for a long time now, I've been meaning to repay the favor and have Emily on strong songs. And now we finally made it happen. Since I'm taking a breather and regrouping after passing the 100 episode mark for Strong Songs, I'm taking the opportunity to record some interviews that I've long wanted to do. This is the first of them, and it's going out in the Patreon bonus feed first, and then about a month later it'll go out in the main feed so that everyone can hear it. And just as a reminder, if you'd like access to that bonus feed, and if you'd like to support what I'm doing with the show, go to patreon.com slash strong songs, and you can also make a one-time donation with the link down in the show notes. Emily and I had a really fun conversation conversation, we covered topics ranging from her background and how she makes her show, to her love of Box Goldberg variations, to our shared love of Birth of the Cool, the groundbreaking 1950s jazz sessions by Miles Davis and Gil Evans, to the Knight Rider theme, some video game music we both love. I think at one point we started talking about Golden Girls. It was a relaxed and enjoyable chat, and I hope that you find it relaxing and enjoyable. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into it. Emily Reese, welcome to Strong Songs. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Kirk. It's good to be here. It is my pleasure. I've. It's funny. I came on your show. When was that? And it was pre-pandemic, so it feels like it was 100 years ago. It does. I can't remember. I just saw the date, too, and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Wow. I remember it was sort <laughs> 17. of... 17. I think it was yes. 17. Yep. Wow. Yep. 2017. So yeah. a whole different, a whole lifetime ago for me. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm so glad that we can chat a little bit more about music. That was a nice conversation. I agree. You're fun to listen to. When I listen to your show, I just kind of feel like I'm talking to you, the joy of podcasting. (laughs) And I suppose one of the one of the benefits of having a podcast is that then you can have people on your show and actually get to have the conversation with them that you pretend you're having when you're listening to a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. So I guess for starters, I want to know a little more about you. I think it would be fun for me and for listeners to just learn a little more about your background and how you came to be one of the premier uh, voices in in video game music and in, and in talking about that area of music in particular. But yeah, so I guess let's start with your musical background. Ah, uh, well, I mean, to go way back, I started on piano first when I was very young. I mm-hmm. had an older sister who was taking lessons, and I kind of copied okay. her, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I went into lessons a little earlier as a result there. Um, and I'm still just the world's worst pianist, like for having had <laughs> like I don't know 14 years of lessons or something. It's like I can barely find middle C. But I uh, bet you're better than I am. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm very good at making it sound like I'm good at piano on strong yeah. songs, but my actual piano chops are, are somewhat lacking. How old were you when you first started taking piano lessons? I think I was five. Oh, wow. Okay. I, th- I think I was five. Uh, yeah, I was pretty, pretty little um, because we, when we fr- grew up in a small town in Iowa and I used to walk to the, my lessons just a few houses down. Um, mm. 
But yeah, and then it was trumpet when I got into the band years, mm-hmm. which was for us fifth grade. And I wanted to play flute so bad, but I couldn't make a sound. <laughs> Thankfully, I think. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think it'd be a very different life if I hadn't played trumpet. Um, mm. But I did that, and that was my main thing. Jazz is what I loved to play. Classical is what I loved to study. Like, not that mm. I didn't love studying jazz too, but was like, I just love music history so much. I'm so fascinated by it. So it was pretty clear I would study that. And I did. And um, then I took some time off and went back and got a master's in music theory. And while I was doing that is when I um, got into radio. And that's how podcasting eventually happened in got it. 2011 is when I first started doing a podcast about music in games. Yeah. So you're based in the Twin Cities now? It's still, right? It's, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. I live in Minneapolis. I've lived nice. in Minneapolis for 15 years almost now. So okay. that was just crazy to me. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's quite a music scene in Minneapolis. My mom's whole family is from the Twin Cities. So I've spent okay. quite a bit of time up there, even though I don't yeah. get there as much these days. But yeah, it's really kind of a surprising music scene. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense the more you learn about, or the more I've learned about the Minnesota Sound and Prince and mm-hmm. more Stay in the Time and all those great bands coming out of there that now, of course, there are still great musicians coming out of, yeah. out of the yeah. Twin Cities, but it's it's pretty cool. It is, yeah. And also a really strong classical scene with mm. two Grammy Award winning uh, classical orchestras, uh, one a full blown symphony orchestra in Minnesota, the Minnesota Orchestra, which is based in Minneapolis, and then St. Paul Chamber Orchestra right across the mm-hmm. river um, are a fantastic chamber orchestra. Uh, and I mean, just I think they're the only full time chamber orchestra in the country. You know, like Orpheus oh, wow. Chamber Orchestra isn't even a full-time. Um, so it's it's a really special place to be. And the jazz scene here is great, too. I mean, to go to jazz club. I just went to a show a couple weeks ago with a fantastic local trumpeter um, and uh, drummer L.A. Buckner, who's fantastic. I'm going to go see Robert Glasper in a couple of weeks. Oh, nice. Like There's there's a lot a lot of great music that comes here uh, to visit and also is, is born here, which is it makes it great. Nice. You were talking about a chamber orchestra. Could you explain that distinction for listeners who might not know uh, what that means? Sure. A lot of times, and a lot, it, there are kind of a lot of things that that make a chamber orchestra. It, first of all, it's much smaller than a traditional, you know, symphony orchestra. So instead mm-hmm. of eighty players on stage, there might just be there could be twenty or there could be forty. You know, so it's much smaller. Usually, in terms of the wind instruments, if there are wind instruments, it's going to be one person on a part, which is sometimes true in a symphony orchestra too, but, um, and then just traditionally there aren't as many winds, you know, sometimes it's just strings. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, just size really. And then repertoire to a certain extent, right? Because they're not going to be doing Mahler right. 8 Symphony for a thousand. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Do, is yeah. there a lot of overlap if you have a, a chamber orchestra and a symphony orchestra in the same town or towns? Is it is it like one person will be in both ensembles or do they actually staff from separate pools of musicians? Separate because, because they're both full-time gigs. Oh, sure. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. So, you know, Minnesota Orchestra symphony musicians are, you know, a lot of those folks are also teaching. And I think that's probably true of, of SPCO players, but, you know, in terms of, you know, they have separate concert masters, they have, uh, separate 
you know, first share members, principal players and, and the like. So there there would be crossover depending on the kind of piece SPCO is going to do. You know, they might mm-hmm. need to pull some people, but they would kind of be the extras anyway. You know, they might be if there's some random chamber orchestra piece that has a third English horn or something like that, you know, right, they might need right. to borrow someone from Minork. But usually they're going to be a pretty separate, separate pool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that mm-hmm. whole world is kind of foreign to me. Just as a mm-hmm. jazz musician, I was never really yeah. in that scene. And then I, I watched Mozart in the Jungle and decided <laughs> that that was just, that's going to be my view. That's how it really is. That show is 100% <laughs> reflective of reality. And that's yeah. how it must be for anyone working in any orchestra <laughs> in any city in America. Um, but it was kind of yeah. fun to watch that show and, and see this fantasy version, at least this sort of yeah. heightened version of what it would be like to be a full-time orchestral musician. Yeah, super cool. Mm-hmm. So you have gotten into radio. You're hosting radio shows about music. What, um, yeah, how was that period? How did that kind of interface with your life as a musician? Just as a, I mean, were you still playing trumpet at the time, or playing more piano, or, or um, you know, where, what oh. were you doing as a musician? Um, yeah, I mean, I trumpet here and there. It's been oh, yeah. more than a year now since I've pulled it out, which is weird. Uh, how are but, your your you know, chops will not thank you for that, I'm they sure. They will when not appreciate it. I mean, I think about it now. It just seems like cold, hard dose of truth to mm-hmm. pick up a trumpet now. But um, but yeah, I I think... I think one thing that's always been true is that I've always loved talking about music. Like Mm. I love for people to get as excited about it as I do, or for (laughs) someone who's really excited to tell me about something I haven't heard or whatever, you know, I just think it's so, because it's so special, right? It's like, it's unique to us in, in Mm -hmm. humans, you know, and I mean, you could argue certain other things, but generally speaking, you know, we compose, it's, it's a cool yes. thing. And like listening to it is such a great thing. And the other thing that I think makes it so cool is that, you know, I definitely don't hear what you hear, even if we hear the same things, they don't mm-hmm. sound, you know, and, and so that's uh, amazing to me. And I think, you know, there tend to be just such great stories behind all the things that we consider great music, right? There just always happens to be this awesome story behind it, whether it's Miles Davis or Bach or Beethoven or Prince or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, and that stuff's fun to talk about and it's it's just a fun experience. And I think that's kind of, I kind of realized, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm not, I'm not probably the best player of, of anything and, and, uh, I, I don't know. I just I just felt like this is where I fit best. And in terms of like radio and and podcasting, you know, it just suited me more musically that way, I guess. No, I totally. Yeah, I completely agree. I get that 100 percent where yeah. the the sharing of music, the talking about music is such an important part of it for me and always has been that I'm yeah. guessing you had a similar experience where just when I was in music school and hanging out with other musicians, the most fun thing we, it's really fun to play with them, but the most fun thing that we would do usually is just sit around and listen to records and freak yeah. out about how great they were if we were listening <laughs> yeah. to something really good. And that's something, yep. you know, I I'm, I have always tried to do with strong songs is to like impart that feeling to listeners of getting yeah. to sit in a room with a friend who is like, check this out. Oh man, wait, here comes the part. Ah, and then <laughs> yeah. it happens. Um, which I, yeah, which amazing. I, yeah, I get the the same feeling from your show. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about your show and just about sure. how that's been going lately and some of these guests you've had. You've been doing it for quite a while now. You've had 
like luminaries of video game composing and also <laughs> indie composers who I don't know, all other yeah. kinds of people around yeah. the space. It's really just become this water cooler of, you know, it's like a center of discussion of video game music. How has that been, just that the evolution of the show, watching it become what it is now from what it was when you started it? Yeah, the evolu- evolution of the show has been amazing. Um, I think it's really been, even though we've been doing this show, Level with Emily, since 2015, it's really been in the last year, I would say, that we had the ability, time-wise, emotionally, (laughs) and otherwise, other reasons, like, that we had all those abilities to make us, like, okay, now we can do this weekly. Like, this is Mm -hmm. how we want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we just, we have so many plans for growing things. But, But for now, it's just, you know... I I feel so lucky and I think, you know, not to bring up COVID, but I think everyone went through a journey. And for me, part of that journey was um, just being really grateful to be able to get work done at home and not um, be resentful about it because I was forced, I was in radio at the time. I'm in radio again, but a different station. And Mm -hmm. at the time I was doing radio in the morning from home every morning And all of my friends, all of my closest friends were all out of work for various reasons, whether they were in the restaurant industry or the service Mm -hmm. industry or something like that. And so nobody's working except I'm just like slaving away every morning. And I was just (laughs) like, I can't take this. And, And when that ended and I just started to be able to just spend time on level the way I wanted to spend time on level, it just... I just was just filled with like this profound sense of luck and gratitude, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and for both of us, my business partner, Sam, Sam Keenan, he and I have been friends for almost 15 years and um, so grateful to work with him on it. And he's also gone through some really positive changes and it's just been it has been quite a ride. Um, and I feel like to go back to your original question, like the evolution of it, uh, it's like there's so much amazing content out there. And it, <laughs> and you, you really kind of couldn't say that, uh, you know, 12 years ago. You, you could to a certain extent, but it was, it was a little harder to find just like a home run every week. And it's just like not a problem now. There's just so much good (laughs) stuff out there. And the other thing that's developed so tremendously over the uh, past, especially five years, I feel like, is like the video game cover artist, like people who cover Mm. game music, which, of course, that's been a lively and robust corner of the Internet for years but the quality of those musicians, you know, these are like Berkeley kids now. And yep. 12 years ago, they weren't Berkeley kids. They were still amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, oh, yeah, I'm not trying sure. to put anyone down or anything. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I completely things, understand what you're saying. Things have grown and changed. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's just literally no shortage of fantastic music or musicians to pull from in, in this this wonderful world of video game music. And it's just made it so wonderful to to work on, you know. So, yeah, that's a little bit about the show, I guess. Do you find, so I've also talked quite a bit about video game music in my time and find it to be uniquely, a unique and interesting kind of music to talk about. Do you find that covering video game music as your primary focus gives you things to talk about that you wouldn't have if you were talking about other styles? 
Yes, yes. I think there's a teamwork aspect to video game music that mm. is um, not talked about very often and, and is not necessarily absent from other forms of media music, but definitely can be absent from all kinds of other types of music. And, sure. and I think, um, you know, the video game composers often, not always, but often have a lot of different things they have to think about when they're mm-hmm. writing their melodies and their music. And um, it it makes it just unique to all all types of music composition. And, you know, I have people, I've had people in my life that are really close to me that don't approve of video games and therefore <laughs> won't even listen to video game music. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, wow, that's really sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like you're really missing out on some incredible creativity because that's it too. It's like they're forced into these weird boxes of creative where they have to figure things out, and it's just it's great. Yeah, that's true. It, I've encountered that less now. Uh, the sort of video game resistance, just because. Yeah, I think yeah. as time passes, more and more people get familiar with with games. But I do still find it sometimes, and it is. Yeah. Remarkable how many of the most talented and interesting musicians working right now are working in video games. And there's there's even, you know, less of a divide between Hollywood and video games. But at the indie level, too, I mean, if yeah. you're a new whatever graduate from some, you know, hoity-toity music program with a composition degree and you're ready to write a bunch of music, you could go to Hollywood and try to get into writing for film. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. There's a lot more opportunity in games and there are, you know, there are better systems for making money off yeah. of your music. It's more likely that you could retain ownership of your music. There's all this, there are all these incentives yeah. that yeah. lead more and more talented people to make music for video games. And then every year it, it feels like they're, I can't keep up anymore. I used to try yeah. to rank my favorite video game soundtracks. I oh. can't even do it anymore because yeah. I don't have time to play all the games, let alone right. really listen to and digest all the music. Right. That's something I struggle with each year, too. And I I used to kind of toy around with doing that in the past. And now I only do it if I'm invited by someone. Like, I usually go on Ben Hansen's MinMax show at the end of each year because he asks me and I'm like, yes, I will make you a list. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel the same way. I'm like, oh, God, I didn't even put Citizen Sleeper on the list or, oh, my God, I didn't put this on the list or that on the Mm -hmm. list. And, And I had to leave off these five things and these 250 things I didn't even hear. You know, mm-hmm. so it's right. it's difficult to keep up for sure. Yeah, which is just a sign of how robust the whole the whole mm-hmm. scene is as a as a musical scene. It's great. Well, cool. I want to talk to you about one of your favorite pieces of music. Is this a piece of music? The Goldberg Variations. <laughs> it, is. Um, it is. Which is, I suppose, a piece is a collection of of short pieces. Um, I want to know more about it because I've been listening to it this week. This is, of course, something I'm very familiar with, and I'm generally familiar with Bach as a composer and have, yeah. you know, I've, I've heard his music, but I'm a jazz saxophonist. I did not um, <laughs> really study Bach beyond, like, you know, basic, like, Theory 101 freshman sure. year at music yep. school where we had to get up early and sit in the, in a, the back of the room and resentfully have some guy explain <laughs> figured bass to us. Yeah. So I guess, for starters... <laughs> Could you just um, tell me and listeners just a little bit about the Goldberg Variations, um, when it was written, how it works, how it functions, that kind of thing? Sure. It was published in 
1741. So uh, Johann Sebastian Bach lived, uh, he was 1685 to 1750. Okay. So toward, you know, toward the end of his life, I, I don't know if it was written in 41, probably not, but that's when it was published. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a piece for solo piano. Um, it was written for harpsichord. And if you've seen harpsichords that have two keyboards on them, that's the type of harpsichord it was written for. Mm. But people play it on solo piano. Um, it's been orchestrated. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of ways to accomplish performing the piece. But as it was intended, he wrote it for a, a harpsichord with two manuals. That's what that's called when they have two keyboards. What does the second keyboard get you? Just a bigger range? Uh, say same uh i think it just prevents certain types of hand crossing mm, and that makes maybe sense. maybe perhaps uh, a, I, honestly I, that would be a little out of my wheelhouse to tell you exactly <laughs> what you get out of it Hello, everyone. Future Kirk here. After I initially published this interview as an early thing for Patreon backers, I heard from a few people with direct experience with harpsichords just about the nature of the double manual harpsichord, the double keyboard harpsichord that Emily was just talking about. And just to give a little bit more info on that, since neither she nor I knew a ton about the specifics, as listener David explains it, the two keyboards pluck the string at slightly different locations, so you get some timbral variation between the notes on the one keyboard and on the others, so you can combine them to get a third timbral option as well. So in addition to allowing the player to avoid hand crossing, a double manual offers a way to play the notes with slightly different timbres and different dynamics on the harpsichord, which normally isn't a very flexible instrument in those regards. So I just thought that was interesting, and then I'd add it on in. Okay, back to the interview. But that was the intent, was harpsichord. And, and I'm a harpsichord nerd, so I love that. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people don't. So then, you you know, if you want to introduce the piece to someone, usually I start with piano because it's digestible, right. more digestible. Yeah, I was listening to the Glenn Gould version of this, which is, I think, the first one that comes up on Apple Music anyways, if you look for it. Oh, yeah. It's hands down. Yeah. He Go is. A fl- it's the 1955 version. There are two different yep. versions that he recorded. And he's a pretty flashy player. Yeah. And th- that stuff gets pretty shredding. I think it's, um, is it Variation 5 is the first yep. one that's my very favorite quick. One. Yep. Burning stuff. Um, I'll probably yeah. be playing it right now so people can hear it. And yeah, I mean, there are times listening to this, I, I found at least as a listener... Some of the joy for me as a mediocre pianist and pretty good music listener was just to try to imagine the two. Uh, there's often two lines sort of moving and intersecting with one another, like two yeah. different kites, you know. And yep. you can hear in this one, you mentioned having uh, whether or not this is the case, having two keyboards on the harpsichord allows you to minimize some of the hand crossing. And yeah. the, you can hear there is hand crossing happening, I believe, yes. is like a big part of these faster pieces. Yes, big time. And so it's, you know, obviously like that means the left hand is crossing over the right hand. Usually it's rare that it's the right crossing the left, I think, in in this particular version. But I think it's I think it's, you know, left crossing the right to be able to play high notes while the right hand is playing the the inner melody. So Mm -hmm. it's it's intense. And that I love that you brought up the fifth variation because I love it. But but just to like pull back for just a half a second. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> too quickly into the, the most yeah. technically difficult <laughs> variation. Yeah, just because, I mean, it is a piano piece, but it's it's a very highly organized piano piece. So mm-hmm. 
the very first thing that you hear is what's called the aria. And it's this beautiful, highly ornamented, because this is Baroque music that we're talking about. So there's trills and mordants and all those things that pianists mm-hmm. would do. And the aria is just a couple minutes long. And it sets up the tonality, which is G major. And it also sets up this chord progression, basically. And then there are 30 variations on that piece, that initial piece. Only three of them are in minor, G minor. Everything else is in G major. So it's like G major punching you in the face all the time, but <laughs> but with like really amazing, wonderful punches of Bach. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, so that's kind of the structure. Now, these variations are really short. So, um, you know, even though it's, well, and then the aria bookends it. So aria, 30 right. variations, mm-hmm. aria. Uh, it sounds like that could be like a marathon, and it's really not that long. It's no, yeah, you know, it's very forty listenable. to sixty minutes. It depends mm-hmm. on who's playing it, but uh, but yeah, so that's kind of the the thing. And so when we talk about the fifth variation, that's what we're we're talking about is mm-hmm. you know number five in that list of thirty variations. Now it's also kind of structured according to a rule set. Is that right? He's he's following some different structures that he's imposed on it as he works through each variation. Yeah, probably. Can I swear on here? Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was just going to say badass, because probably the most badass thing about the Goldberg variations is that every third variation is a canon. Mm. So canon being like if you and I sang row, row, row your boat, right? I right. would start it. Then you would come in later. But you'd come in on the same note. You'd come in on the same right. note that I started on. So that's called mm-hmm. a canon at the unison. So the first canon is a canon at the unison. The next okay. canon is a canon with an interval of the uh, a major second. So the first voice comes in, the following voice plays the exact same line, but always a step ahead. And mm-hmm. because he's a genius, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> and then so on and so on, all the way to 10. The 10th, when he gets to the 10th canon, um, I think is actually like, a, it's not a canon. But the others all are. So there's a canon at the ninth. I mean, it's crazy. It's it's right. insane genius <laughs> to me. I mean, I literally do. Like, I just, I just, to me, there's just no question, no question that this is the best piece of music in the world. Like, I know that's oh, crazy to say. But to me, I'm just like, this is, this is perfection. I mean, there's just no... I don't know. <laughs> it has that kind of perfect quality because it's so logical. It's following these beautiful symmetries, which is yeah. a specific type of beauty, right? Um, yeah. Where there are other kinds of musical beauty as well. This of is one that it's like if you impose these systems onto it and then within those structures can create yeah. something that sounds really beautiful, which is not always that easy to do. Right. That's kind of where the magic of it lies, that he came up with these systems and then created something beautiful within them. I, I think right. back to taking um, counterpoint uh, in music school, which yeah. is, again, as a jazz musician, like something I actually should have been more open to than I was at the time. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. There was a little too much of it sort of jazz classical divide when I was in music school that mm-hmm. I look back on now as very immature and something that, of course, you know, yeah, we like I mean, culturally reinforced among ourselves because we were the cool jazz guys, you know, and yeah. we didn't want to go play this square stuff. That's for the marching band. Yeah. But in truth, I mean, like, if you look at what Charlie Parker was doing, like, he was he was following all these rules of counterpoint. He Like, bebop especially yep. was moving through the harmony in all of these very rigorous ways. And then mm-hmm. with Charlie Parker, 
the beauty of Charlie Parker's lines um, were the, the specific ways that he moved according to those rules. He'd break the rules yeah. in ways that weren't really breaking the rules. You know, it's, just, it's similar to Bach in that way, yep. where yep. It, the rules are there. It's the beauty comes in what you do with them. Right. So something that I noticed when learning counterpoint was how you can create like an okay sounding canon or a fugue. We learned how to write a fugue, <sighs> which yeah. is a much more complicated. I'm gonna you know more than more than I do, but I'm gonna <laughs> try to give my for listeners try to give a sort of approachable thing. But it's basically like one voice will play a melody, then the second voice will come in and play the same melody that the first voice started with. The first voice has already moved on to something else. The third voice mm -hmm. comes in with some version of that initial statement. So if you've ever listened to a fugue, you'll hear these separate voices come in. Mm -hmm. And then I've played a lot of sax quartet fugues because they're great yeah. for quartets because there's four sure. voices. And they sound really good with the sax quartet. And it's really fun when you're hearing, you know, the tenor sax is here, the alto is here, sopranos here. You can really hear the mm -hmm. four different voices very clearly. And that helped me understand how a fugue worked, and then playing an individual part, which is just one finger of the yeah. pianist who's playing <laughs> yeah. the fugue, which is kind of crazy to think about. One reason I'm not good at piano yeah. is that I'm yeah. a saxophonist, and I think in, in single lines. But playing the one part really helped drive home how beautiful each individual voice is in yes. something like a fugue or a canon, like you're talking about in the Goldberg variations, and then mm -hmm. how much you can do with that, where once you learn the rules of counterpoint, you can mm -hmm. start to follow them, and it's like, okay, well, I don't know, I can't remember the names of things, but there'll be like a descending sequence, da 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 da, yeah. and you write something like that, and you're like, it's just down a major scale, you know, yeah. starting on the root and then it ends on the root, yep. and it's pretty easy to get into that voice where you're kind of mm -hmm. like, okay, we'll just write this thing, and then you can kind of figure out, okay, well, if that's the top voice, then the harmonizing voice is going to have to like do this, and you can write something that sounds okay, but there's <laughs> such a distance between just following the rules and getting something that technically follows the rules and something as beautiful as right. what Bach was writing, and right. that's kind of the magic of of this kind of music. Oh, it is, and you know, you were mentioning a, a four voice fugue. I mean, a lot of fugues just need three voices, right, and of course, right. the Goldberg aria is just two, and and a lot of times there's two or three only. Mm -hmm. in in Goldberg usually 3 and i mean that's crazy again that's just it's plenty it's ridiculous. plenty <laughs> i know it's it, yeah. it's and of course we talk about this with 8 bit music right we talk about this with nintendo yes. music how they mm -hmm. they basically did the same thing you know 400 years later or mm -hmm. a little less just because they had so many restrictions and and bach just that was just how people wrote then so right. it's just it's crazy yeah you just need a few voices and you can make something amazing <laughs> There's something fascinating to me about the engraving and the writing of the music itself from this time period, where you oh. were talking about how it's Baroque music, so there are trills and there are these, or, or certain figures that are like expressive figures written mm -hmm. over the notes. And mm -hmm. I know there's there's always some wiggle room where people will have a debate over whether this is meant to be played, whether this was originally notated in the piece. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Because I've always found it interesting, uh, just from the outside. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big discussions that always happens in classical music is, you know, historically informed performance practice or just performance mm. practice or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Um, and it's just a question of, you know, when Bach wrote these things down, what did he intend? And when 
when someone from the Baroque era or someone from the era right after that, the classical era, writes, it indicates that the instrumentalist is supposed to trill, you know, play two notes close right. together really fast. Are we starting on the note that is written or are we starting mm-hmm. on the note above it? Or, you know, and so there's all mm-hmm. these really, really interesting things that you're kind of supposed to know what era did what, what thing, but we still... I don't think really know. I don't know. <laughs> right, because the music wasn't recorded and there's no way yeah, to know yeah. for sure. It's one of the reasons that I think at least early 20th century music is so important to preserve. I talk to a lot of guys, especially oh. these days. One of my good buddies is really into 20s jazz and oh, is cool. you know like yeah. a scholar about that stuff. And that's the style of music he plays. And because there are these recordings, you can find these, you know, like wax cylinder recordings yeah. of Jelly Roll Morton or whoever playing it. You can reference back and be like, no, the trill should, you know, whatever. Yeah, it should yeah. start on the higher note or yep. on the lower yep. note or the swing feel needs to be this way. But with Bach, you, you can't. And so it kind of just... Right. Like how how is there an agreed upon standard? I I have no idea. I I just remember you know I had listened to Goldberg so many times before I ever was like you know what I want to look at the score. <laughs> I'm gonna look at the score, yeah. and I remember like pulling out the aria and looking at the aria and being like, "Are you serious? This is what's written?" Like because it's like nothing, right? There's like nothing right. on the page. There's just all these symbols and. As someone who studied piano, I know some of them, but a lot of them I have to look up because I'm like, oh, wait, what kind of ornament is that? Exactly mm-hmm. what is happening here? Right. <laughs> it's incredible. It's really. But that was, you know, the hallmark, one of the one of the huge hallmarks of the Baroque era. And so much of that went away and never really came back in, in a way. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it just it was just kind of what it was. So we'll never know. It's the fascinating thing about this, the oral tradition nature of music, like how for so long music was just totally oral and was passed yeah. down from one person to another. And you would just learn how to play it listening to someone else. And yeah. then we started writing it before we started recording it. Yeah, and there's just this period before, of time yeah. where it's being yeah. written out, but it's not being <laughs> recorded. And so it's like a there's a what would you call that? It's like a medium translation issue <laughs> where you're kind of. <laughs> Taking something that is music and writing it out is just never going to work. We have in the um, Strong Songs Discord, we've been talking about music notation a lot. I've been playing around with um, Muse score. Have you, what do you use for music notation? Not to sidetrack us, but do you have a a preferred app? Oh, I don't notate. I haven't notated since. since the Sibelius days is what oh, I used okay. in grad school and stuff. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm not a composer, so I don't. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm using it more when I do have a project. I, I have to notate yeah. things occasionally or I'll write them out for myself because I can't remember all the woodwind parts. But I, I used Sibelius for a long time, which for listeners, Finale and Sibelius have long kind of been the Coke and Pepsi of music notation apps. <laughs> yeah. There's a free, there's an open source one called MuseScore. They just okay. released a new version of it and it's really good. So I've been cool. using it. It's kind of shocking good and it's free which is amazing oh wow um and it kind of reminds me of old school sibelius because they made okay. sibelius bad at some point like avid bought it and then made it bad. oh really so okay. and i promise i'm not going to sidetrack us for too long about <laughs> yeah, this. no it's totally um, fine it's i'm cool. going somewhere with this but we've been talking <laughs> a lot about music notation and it's just reminded me of all of the weird idiosyncrasies of writing out music and yeah. if you go back which i've never really done but from what you're describing you go back to find you know original copies of things from the 18th century, of music from the 18th century, mm-hmm. and try to interpret it, there's always this weird disconnect that happens. And there still is. And there's yeah. still people who argue about 
I don't know, whatever, like where to yeah. tie a note or, or how to use, <laughs> like what duration to have something, where to split articulations. things. Articulations. Definitely. Articulations mean thing. something different to mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. And the way I learned it, it was so practical because it was, again, it was a jazz education. So I was in jazz arranging yeah. class and Gary Lindsay, my professor, he'd be like, here's what you need to do to make your chart the most legible by the most people in like a studio setting, because that is what <laughs> is going to matter the most. Yeah. But when you get into the sort of academic discussions of like, what does this, you know, like write a carrot accent? Yep. What does that mean? It means something yeah. very different yeah. to different musicians. And I don't know, I've, I've always found that yeah. uh, very interesting. You can't escape interpretation, I suppose, no matter right. how much you try to boil things down, write things down, sort of systematize it. You just can't get away from the fact that at some point, Glenn Gould is going to sit down and he's going to do his Glenn Gould thing. And like, that's going to sound completely different from somebody else. Well, and it did too. I mean, people were really surprised by the way he played that piece. I mean, first of Mm -hmm. all, that piece was an that piece was like a, a non-issue before he recorded it. Nobody, nobody oh, really? recorded that piece. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you want to record this? Why do you want to record this? It's 45 minutes of G major. Who cares? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, it wasn't in the repertoire like it mm. is now. Like everybody has to do Goldberg now. They all mm-hmm. have to do their Beethoven piano sonata cycle. They all have to do Goldberg. Yeah. You know, it's how it goes. And, um, and when Gould played, he plays in such a marcato style right which i mm-hmm. i i never know like i don't know what your listeners know but i would explain <laughs> to my listeners you know oh, that's by like, all means ex- explain it's not that. staccato right you're not like that right. that but you're kind of there's separation between notes mm-hmm. so it's marcato kind of is almost like a marching kind of like mm-hmm. thing you think in your head and so it's it's all very deliberate. And, you know, just to compare, you can find other recordings from pianists who are playing in a much more what we would call romantic style, where all the notes are connected and there's all this dynamic mm-hmm. range. Well, on a harpsichord, there's no dynamic range, right? <laughs> right. You get dynamics by adding fingers <laughs> to, to, the, <laughs> to the system. So um, so it's, it's, yeah, interpretations go all over the place. And that was, you know, one of the things that really surprised people by Gould's first recording and and in kind of equally so with this second recording because of how mm-hmm. divergent it was from the first and um that many decades later so so is that what you like about the harpsichord version that that it's a little bit more restricted in terms of dynamic range yeah i'm yeah i mean and and also i'm like well dude that's what it's for you know right, which right. which is i don't want to be like a traditionalist or anything yeah. like that but i think with this piece mm-hmm. it's just really cool to hear it because especially with that fifth variation for instance it sounds very different because one of the cool things about that fifth variation is we're going to talk about it as though there are three hands which we know there aren't okay but you have two lines that are primarily melodic, one supporting the other. And then in the bass, the left hand is just <laughs> in its own world. Just kind of doing, bopping, bopping around, it's really. Just, <laughs> it's just noodling, just mm-hmm. noodling down there. And um, uh, it comes out so much uh, more 
there's it's just louder on harpsichord. On piano, you would because that's such a muddy part of the piano way down in the bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you would back off on that, and and you can hear that in the piano recordings. People really kind of bring that back. Well, you can't do that on harpsichord. You can't make the right hand sound louder than the left hand. So mm. it's just it, it just kind of brings this whole different experience to what that was like. The other thing. Um, that I like about Gould's interpretation on piano that mimics harpsichord is he hardly uses the sustain sustain pedal, right? Because yeah, I piano that. has the ability to you put a pedal down and it suspends mm-hmm. the hammers from the strings and lets the strings just ring in this beautiful, very pianistic yes. uh, characteristic, right? And mm-hmm. and that's obviously absent from a harpsichord and uh, so, so that's one of the things I, I like about ghouls, but, but, you know, the harpsichord version, it's just, I just think that instrument gets such a bad rap, man. I just, <laughs> I just, cause there are a lot of really badly recorded harpsichords. It's yeah. obnoxiously loud and difficult to record. So that mm-hmm. I get. Um, but like the, the one, one of the discs that I sent you or one of the recordings I sent you for my three recordings, mm-hmm. it's one of the most beautifully recorded, uh, harpsichord albums I've ever heard. It's just so resonant and gorgeous. And it just like fills you with this vibration of these strings that have been plucked, you know, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Some of those old instruments can get a bad rap because they're difficult to maintain. They're difficult yep. to keep in tune. Yes. And you do have to know how to play them. That is something I've come to appreciate more about old jazz <laughs> yeah. as well. The the C melody saxophone is the saxophone that like Frankie Trombauer played back in the okay. back in the day. So some of those really old um, late teens and 20s. Yeah recordings will have this C melody sax, which is a very strange saxophone that exists between alto and tenor. And I don't have one. I've played one. But it was a sound that I didn't like for a long time because it's just kind of uncanny. And it's a little harder to play in tune because of the tuning. But I kind of want one because now I, like, if I were going to play that kind of music, I would want to play it on the, on the, instrument that people use like why not actually you know go and and try to get that sound and then understand the beauty of it so similar sort of thing for for sax but yeah old instruments like that can be really cool Yeah. Well, and of course, also, they were just tuned differently in many ways, right? Like A440 wasn't A440. Right. Mm -hmm. And then so, you know, if you play them back to back, uh, harpsichord recording is usually going to sound like a half a step, a whole step lower. And then beyond that, they're not tuned using equal temperament, which makes a huge, huge difference (laughs) with Baroque keyboard music. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just undeniably... A, a, that's just a factor, you know? Mm-hmm. So it makes, sometimes it makes a harpsichord just sound out of tune and people don't like it. So right, right. I get we're so it. used to, to temperament. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I haven't gotten too into on the show just because it's such a can of worms and I'm... It is. I, I don't actually know how I feel about it <laughs> just because I've messed with alternate, with alternate tuning, you know, standards, but at the same time, I'm also... Mm-hmm. Usually just like, okay, whatever, I, I'm just going to try to write a song here. I'm going to do it in 440. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Well, once you learn that a piano is always out of tune, that kind of mm-hmm. ruins you for life. You're like, oh, what? <laughs> Wait, what? I thought they were, I <laughs> yeah. thought you hired, I, we just hired a piano tuner. We paid I know. hundreds yep. of dollars. They tuned it out <laughs> of tune me. on purpose. Yeah, you're yeah, right. That's funny. <laughs> Well, let's stay in the 1950s, but let's move on to a new topic because at the time that Glenn Gould was recording uh, the first, his first famous version of the Goldberg Variations, 
a couple years later, uh, Miles Davis and Gil Evans would release the full version of some recordings that they had been doing really throughout mm-hmm. the 1950s. So another another of your favorites when I asked you to just pick some topics was uh, Birth of the Cool, which is one of my favorite records as well. And I'm very yeah. excited to talk about it a little bit. But yeah, maybe tell me a little about this record and why you love it. I love this record because it's different from things <laughs> that were going on in that era, which I love right, that right. era. Like, like you know, Ben Webster all day. I just want uh, Ben oh Webster man. and Oscar Peterson the and sound. Coleman Hawkins. That's what I want, you know. And so I am a huge, huge, huge fan of that. But then, you know, Gil Evans and Miles Davis and Jerry Mulligan and others came together and they're like, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to blend some things and try some different. And there was Stan Kenton, right? Kenton was Mm -hmm. doing his thing, but he had the full orchestra and it's all dense. And this music is dense, too, but with much fewer players. And it's um, the sound is it's just so great. You know, yeah. it's like, um, I love the, the through composed nature to it, how the solos come in and out of the texture. You know, it's just like, you think, you know what jazz is. And <laughs> then these guys recorded this in 1949. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? Like, you know no what kidding. I mean? You're just yeah, like, move. Some of those early tracks were so <laughs> yeah, early. It's pretty wild to listen to some of it. Cause I think yeah. of a lot of this harmonic stuff as being, yeah, more late 50s into the 60s, where yeah. in 49, the fact that Gil Evans was already doing this, this I'm, I want to reread Miles Davis's autobiography, which oh is such a fantastic book and it is. such a colorful book Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of language, especially, but uh, just in a lot of ways. <laughs> and um, I haven't read it since I was uh, like in high school, I think. Yeah. So he, I, he talks a lot about this era and about leaving Charlie Parker's band, where yep. he got his start playing with Charlie Parker in the in the sort of mid forties, mm-hmm. and then his he was always a little defensive in some ways about how he couldn't do the Dizzy Gillespie thing on trumpet and like yeah. you know like light the thing on fire and blast around in the upper register the way that Dizzy Gillespie could. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. was more of a middle register guy. He just didn't quite have those chops. And then he kind of fell in with Gil Evans and with this scene of musicians where they, Gil was all, I think he had been working with um, Claude Thornhill's for Claude Thornhill, which is a similar sort of large ensemble. You were talking about Stan Kenton too, where they're like going to maybe be a, there'll be a French horn in here or a baritone horn or a euphonium. Or a tuba. Or a tuba, who knows? (laughs) Um, It's not just going to be, you know, Charlie Parker's group was a trumpet alto sax rhythm section mm-hmm. like it was just yep. super straightforward quintet so yeah. they start writing for this no net you were talking about the size of the ensemble yes and that's typically Chamber it's group. funny that that kind of became standardized when i was in school i played in a no net there oh, was really? a yeah he was a i'm forgetting the guy's name he was a master's student this is at university of miami and he put together this no net f- to play all this music that he'd written yeah i don't think we had a french horn but we might have and it was really like he was following that template. He he was sure. taking the birth of the cool template and treating it as though that were an established kind of jazz mm-hmm. ensemble, mm-hmm. which never really happened. It's one yeah. of the remarkable things about listening to this is that right. You know, nothing sounded like this before, but nothing really sounded like this after either. It's just right. The Not jazz even no the Gil Evans collaborations they exactly sounded right. like this after. Yeah, um, like sketches of Spain and Porgy and Bess and those, yep. those records, which sound yeah. are beautiful but sound very different from Birth of the Cool. 
Yeah, the nine players, man. I mean, again, just like that's, you know, we were talking about like symphony orchestra versus chamber orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, nine Mm -hmm. people is what we would call a chamber group. That's a chamber ensemble, right? It's one person to a part. And it's like, uh, it's, it's just this little tiny group. But I think, and I've often wondered, like, why isn't there more of that? It's a lot of work, I think, mm-hmm. to, to write all that stuff out. Because jazz, right? It's like, yeah. let's play this head. Everybody takes four <laughs> Especially choruses. at the time, right. Then, it would yeah, be right? Yeah, straight like, up. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's like, now you want me to, like, read music and, yeah, like, mm-hmm. do all these things with a conductor and uh, mm-hmm. all this. And, um you know, in a different way than like Count Basie was a conductor. Right. So it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it is, it's weird. And I think when you listen to a lot of those arrangements, you know, I I personally, my favorites are probably Jerry Mulligan's tracks just because he wrote it for that group. It's not them taking some other awesome standard and arranging it for the group, which those sound great too. But these like Jerry Mulligan originals that he wrote for the birth of the ghoul sessions, those tunes are great. Yeah, that the that style of ensemble where it's not a big band, so it's not, you know, five saxes, four bones, four trumpets, yeah. rhythm section, which was the Count Basie or the Duke Ellington style. Yeah. Usually mm-hmm. Duke. Duke wrote some stuff for smaller ensembles, and that stuff tends to be really cool in that scene. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, it's a cool size of an ensemble and a, a nice style of writing. And you're right that we don't see that much of it, which is I'm trying to think why that is, because because I like I to write for that sort of a group. Like my ideal yeah. group is something like, kind of like what Pat Metheny was doing with Pat Metheny Group, where there's like established parts for keyboard, guitar, yeah. you know, rhythm section, but then adding in four or five horns, and they're not a horn section in the way that like most modern pop or rock groups have a horn section where they're right, playing horn right. figures and doing the horn yep. thing, but where you have composed the music to actually work with that horn section. Some of those groups like um, Corey Wong's group, actually a Minnesota musician, he does some writing where he starts to head in that direction, where he's writing this kind of Pat Metheny groupish stuff. And I really want to hear a record where he goes fully in that direction of like really compositional through composed large ensemble stuff. Cause I love writing music like that. I would love to hear more of it. And while listening to this record in preparation for this, just reminded me of how few things there are that sound like it. I know. Yeah, there are all these albums that um, the trumpeter, uh, oh yeah, it's uh, the guitarist Wolfgang Muthspiel. I don't know how to say his last name and I can't remember what his nationality is. He's European, obviously. Um, It might be Austrian. Um, But the trumpeter Ambrose Akin Musery, on on Wolfgang's albums, there's a lot of through composed stuff that's really cool. And and I feel like it's kind of made a comeback a little bit, you know, like, but I I agree that still the standard is, okay, if you go see a jazz show, that's you're going to hear, you know, head choruses and head and we're done. Yeah, some of that is just financial, right? That it's just hard yeah. to put together and maintain yep. a group of that size, especially yep. if, you know, the way Mulligan was writing for this group, those players had been meeting, I think, in Gil Evans's apartment yeah. and just hanging out and, like, talking about this stuff, and they were really philosophically yep. aligned. So there came yeah. a point where he could write knowing Lee Connitz is going to play this alto yep. sax part. Like, this will be Max Roach on drums, so I can yeah. kind of 
write for that musician. And that's a just a luxurious place to be that, that <laughs> yeah. not many people get to be in just for practical and financial reasons. You know, so-and-so yep. is off on tour. So-and-so left the city because they can't afford to live here anymore. Right. Like it can just sort of be hard. But um, <laughs> yeah. it is, yeah. there's just an energy to this album and a sound to it as well. Yep. Um, just the way it was recorded. It's kind of before that Blue Note Rudy Van Gelder sound took over everything, sure, which is sure. I've become kind of more critical of in some ways and as oh, I get older. And okay. I, I I like the kind of more old fashioned recording on this and think it sounds mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. sounds really good. And yeah, I don't I love Lee Connitz, the alto sax player oh, on yeah. this. He was a guy that I, I listened to a lot when I was kind of in high school and then sort of fell off of him for a while. But then I came back to him. I think he was the last living member for a while, and then he died, I think, in 19 or 20. Oh, wow, really? Okay, so fairly Mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they were supposed to re-record this album. I don't know if you knew that, but Jerry Mulligan asked Miles Davis if he wanted to do it again in the early 90s. Oh, wow. And they said yes, and then Miles died in 91. It never happened. I think they had it scheduled or something even, like it was Mm going to happen. But, uh, yeah, uh, it didn't. That would have been cool. Yeah, I wonder if I the charts, are the charts for this out there? I'm sure people have done transcriptions. I mean, they I have to be, they, yeah. They must be. It'd be cool yeah, to just be. hear someone re-record this. This is the kind of thing I'd love to hear. It'd be fun to go see it live, you know? Like yeah, no just kidding. puts on birth, like you go see, you know, mm-hmm. Dark Side of the Moon with lasers. I want to go see... <laughs> Birth of the Cool with lasers. Birth of the cool with lasers. lasers. <laughs> Move comes on and the smoke machine turns on and everybody loses it. <laughs> I'd be out there screaming. Yeah, that'd be amazing. That'd be great. All right, well let's let's go to the third the third piece of music that that we're going to talk about, which is quite a stylistic left turn. This Such is the theme from is a TV though? show that that many people will recognize. It's probably playing behind me right now, and that is yeah. Stu Phillips theme from Knight Rider. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about this. Why do you why do you love this theme? Well, I mean, this is just one of those happy accidents kind of. I I uh, literally because I got in a bike accident at the end of the summer mm. and oh, no. couldn't really do much and and yeah, you know, just there. watching TV and you know, you get all bummed out. You're like, god, I can't even like bike and it's like Gonna mm-hmm. snow suit, <laughs> whatever. You're not getting those endorphins, you can't exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially so, in Minnesota. Geez, you're getting ready oh, for man. the winter. We get like two and a half weeks of summer, and that's about it. No, we get more than that. Yeah. But. Great biking though in in, yeah. in Minneapolis in the summer. Oh, great biking! What in a, what we a are biking! So city. lucky. Yes, 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 that is the truth. Um, but but yeah, I and I. I just remember I because th- I think it's on Netflix right now, and and it popped up on my whatever you know, mm-hmm. suggestions you or something like, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For maybe because of my age, I have no idea. Cause I don't really make a habit of watching eighties TV, I guess, but <laughs> it was there and I saw it and I was like, God, you know, I, I've, I don't remember the Knight Rider origin story. Like I don't remember how this show starts or how mm-hmm. Kit comes to be the car. Right. And, uh, and so I watched it and I was just like, amazed at how this show starts. I mean, it's just How does it start? I I, I actually, I don't know. So Michael Knight is the main character, of course, played by David Hasselhoff. Mm -hmm. And so he has, like, in the the first show, in the first episode, I don't know if it's the pilot or the first episode or what, but he's a different person. And he gets shot in the face, and he gets a new face. What? (laughs) 
He gets yeah. David Hasselhoff's face. He gets his own. He gets just like it's his new face, and then okay. he's Michael Knight, you know. And and uh, he gets this <laughs> car with AI, and it's it's just so bizarre. And then he like has like vengeance. Like that's the purpose is like to go find the people who find did this to him and him. fix the problem. And oh, so it's a video game, basically. It's, yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, it's there's not Very much creative to it. It's like John Travolta's face off with mm-hmm. an AI car, basically, but. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it's just you know that era of television where they're still using live bands and yeah. I mean it's very typical eighties like big bands like screaming trumpets and stuff with electric mm-hmm. guitar and and whatnot but uh, I just was so I just fell so hard for the music I was like oh my god this is so good you just don't hear this anymore it would sound wrong if we did you know it would mm-hmm. just wouldn't work but it's still it's just like god what an era of music in in television and 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 I and I also was just really taken just uh completely unrelated to the music I was really surprised how many women in the show had like gender bending roles like interesting you know the mechanic is a woman and like software developers are women and all this stuff and I'm like wow that didn't take did it (laughs) (laughs) still took us a while to get there but uh but it was that can that that kind of thing can totally be interesting when you go back to the 70s and realize that there are kind of more progressive and interesting ideas in science fiction and in fiction and in storytelling yeah Sometimes we think because it's like, oh, it was a retrograde era and things have come so far. But sometimes it's like, no, not really. Like things things kind of ebbed and flowed. But there were a lot of really cool things like that even back then. The style of music here. I mean, so I'm totally with you. I've talked some about the KPM 1000 series of records. Are you familiar with these? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Those library records? (laughs) Yep, yep. So I got really obsessed with those like a year ago. And listening to the Knight Rider theme reminded me of listening to those. Because those are also, I believe, from the 1970s. And these are, I've talked about these on the show before, but for anyone who doesn't know, they're these library records recorded by studio musicians in the UK that were intended for use just for whatever. Like they could be licensed to you if you had a radio station or a TV network or something. You would get these records and then you could use, you know, and you've got a whatever like (laughs) travelogue show and it's like, you know, this glorious harps and the strings and it's very the kind of groovy Mm -hmm. 70s sound and they're all real musicians. They've some of the players from those records have become kind of cult icons. The organ player, whose name I'm forgetting right now, Alan something, I think, is like now really well known. He's a great organ player. Yeah. But he played all these kind of jams. Um, anyone who watched Adult Swim probably heard some of these in the 2000s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Adult Swim used okay. the KPM 1000 series. That kind of brought oh, them sweet. back. I didn't know that. That's and then, awesome. like, I think MF Doom sampled one. Like, a hip-hop producers really like sampling them. Anyways, sure. that style of music, you can hear yeah. it in Knight Rider as well. And it totally is that, yeah. like... It's the live studio session musician sound where they yes. just brought people in to record this thing. The drummer on the main Night Rider theme is killing it. Yeah. The pocket on that thing is great. There's, it's not quantized, so they're using a lot of synthesizers. There's this lead part that sounds like a prophet or something. This sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, everyone. And the famous lead. And like, it's such a great sound because yeah. it just sounds, I mean, they're, I guess they're probably plugged direct into the board, but it's it's just being played. And they're all <laughs> yeah. being played. I think 
I think this was played by a, a number of different people in the room together, all playing synthesizers. Right. This wasn't how you would do a modern soundtrack to sound like this, which would be a DAW with a bunch of MIDI synchronizing a bunch of, if you're lucky, outboard synthesizers, but probably just <laughs> software synthesizers yeah. on the computer. And it just wouldn't have quite the same yep. sound. It would be a lot cheaper, a lot easier to do. A lot yep. more shows could have soundtracks like that. But yeah, yeah. listening to it, it just there's just it this breathes. magic to it. It yeah. breathes. Yeah, it, it breathes. has space. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. And and I mean, it's just all over, right? I mean, the chase scenes all have these, yeah. you know, music written for them. And, and, you know, if you start to watch just, I think you start to hear, oh, they're using the same interstitials and whatnot. Um, another show I got into, I know you're not prepared for this and that's okay. No, you don't need fine. to be. Because uh, <laughs> I, I had some, some personal issues like right around the turn of the year from 21 into 22 mm-hmm. and i i was having trouble sleeping which mm-hmm. isn't usually a problem for me i'm a pretty good sleeper which i love it's uh, an important skill it's true it's an important skill just <laughs> invaluable uh but i was having trouble and so uh i did something that i never do which is i brought my laptop back to the bedroom and put tv on my laptop to fall asleep to tv Mm-hmm. And it was the Golden Girls. Oh man! <laughs> I don't know why. I, I was wondering what it was going to be to this day. Why I chose that? I mean, I grew up in the '80s, right? So this is some, some of these things make sense. I was born yeah. in the '70s, but uh, but it's, it's a like, very comforting show, though. Like, it is. I, yeah. And, and talk about progressive. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the topics they covered in that show. Like Rose has an AIDS scare, mm-hmm. and you're like, what? You know, uh, I mean, Blanche has a gay brother, and of course, Sophia and Dorothy, Sophia's son and Dorothy's brother, is a mm-hmm. is a crossdresser. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like all these things, and you're like, wow. And we're still struggling with some of these conversations right, today, right. and here they Golden are in girls the 80s, were just doing it, yeah. talking about it. Just and the the Looney Tunes gags on that show. But but here's the funny thing about <laughs> that is that I for months fell asleep to this show, not watching any of it, just with it on in the background. Just the audio. Just the audio. Mm. And did that for months and hadn't seen any of those episodes probably since they aired in the late 80s and early 90s. So um, one night, just a couple months ago, I was like, I wonder what that character looks like in that episode that I know like the back of my hand right now, but I haven't seen in 20 plus years or whatever, Mm -hmm. 40 years. And and so I've started watching it sometimes. If I just need like a 20 minute boop, I'll be like, I'm going to watch an episode of Golden Girls and it's like seeing it for the first time again, you know, but I know what's going to happen. And the music for that show also is fantastic. But Mm -hmm. point being, they use the same interstitials for all seven seasons. So you're hearing the same music over and over and over and over and right, over again. Right, those and you transitional really stingers and stuff. Um, yeah. And that happens in Knight Rider too, uh, of course. I mean, that's a budget thing. It makes no sense for them to record new music for every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really was a, a great a great time for music in, in media as well in its own way. Yeah, there's definitely something about the oral landscape of a television show in particular because yeah. they're so long form, there's so much of them. They tend to repeat musical cues, but in different yeah. contexts and just listening to how they work. This is something I found. I did an episode about the music of Andor, um, oh. an amazing show with an amazing, amazing score yeah. by Nicholas Bertel. And listening to that, just I found as I was making the episode, since it's, I didn't, it's not a video podcast, it's just a podcast. I was like doing a lot of work with just the sound of the show and the sound effects and mm-hmm. mixing in with the music. Um, yeah. And it can be a really cool thing. I could especially see watching something that's a little more old fashioned and formulaic, like yeah. Golden Girls, yep. to to really work almost as just a 
like a radio show. Like you, you don't need to yeah. see what's happening, even though the, of course, the performances are a big part of it and the yep. facial expressions and whatever. You could listen yeah. and probably, yeah, probably get a lot out of it. Yeah, when I was listening, I started to get kind of annoyed by Blanche Devereaux. And for those not familiar with the show, she's the slut. They always yes. call her a slut. Always. They call they say slut on that show mm. so much. I'm just like, wow, I didn't know you, I didn't even just know you could say that on TV hard. in the eighties. They're <laughs> yeah. just doing it. Um and, and she kinda bothered me a little bit until I started watching her and her mm. Just her body language and her facial expressions are so perfect that I just completely fell in love with her again, you know, as a character. And yeah. um uh yeah, there's there's something about the visuals to that show that are pretty great too. And just all the Looney Tunes gags. It's crazy. There's an alarming amount of physical comedy on that show for it being about a bunch of old ladies. <laughs> yeah, we've talked my partner Emily and I have talked about um watching Golden Girls actually. Like this this has come up. Worth so it. I don't think you're quite as unusual in wanting to watch Golden Girls. I think it's kind of yeah. a thing that a number of people kind of want right now or might want to watch it. It needs it needs to happen. It needs mm-hmm. a remaster. I am I just think that like far and wide we should be doing all all that we can to get people to remaster that show because mm, it bring, deserves yeah. a remaster. It's yeah, so good. That. That's so nice. Good. That makes me want to watch some <laughs> Golden Girls. You'd, I highly recommend. Yeah. Well, one more thing before we get to your album recommendations, which I'm also very excited about. And that is so we've talked some about video game soundtracks in the abstract since you talk about them so much. But I, yeah. I wanted to ask you about a game soundtrack that you've been digging uh, or yeah. finding interesting or, or beautiful in some way. Yeah, I am so glad you're asking that because it's such a huge part of my life. And, you know, I've worked in jazz radio. I've worked in classical radio. Mm -hmm. Those things, you know, whatever radio I'm in tends to kind of take over my listening. Sure. Um, And now I'm in radio, but it's news radio. (laughs) So I don't have any listening for work in that way. Right. Uh, So I've just been so grateful to get to listen to so, so many video game scores uh, more than ever in in my Mm -hmm. life lately. And it's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, since I do weekly show, it's, it's pretty much weekly that I'm talking to someone, you know, some, as you know, you'll do two interviews in a week and then you won't do interviews for a while or whatever. Mm-hmm. But generally I'm, you know, on a soundtrack a week. Uh, and, and so my, my loves change constantly, but, but lately I've been really quite into the Citizen Sleeper soundtrack, mm-hmm. which another uh, video game music nerd, Jacob Geller turned me on to. And cause I didn't play the game. I have downloaded it and I've played like 10 minutes of it, but I haven't I haven't played it. Um, but Citizen Sleeper soundtrack, it's all electronic um, by a West Coaster named Amos Roddy. And looking forward to interviewing him soon in uh, early February. I'm going to uh, interview him. But it's just a really um, uh, beautiful electronic album. Uh, with uh, It's very introspective. Uh, but there's also a lot of like shuffle and triplet type rhythms that are really groovy it's Mm -hmm. so good and you're just like and some of them kind of take a minute to sink into that and when it sinks into that you're just like oh that is so right like there's nothing else he could have done than that and it's so perfect um so that's probably what i've been listening to the most lately outside of whatever i'm quote-unquote supposed to be listening to at the time yeah that's really cool that you've been listening to it totally independent of the game which i did some after playing the game i played the heck out of this game i played all the way through it and got like every single ending i adore this game i really hope you find time to play it because it is special it's really really beautiful 
Yeah. It'll be kind of stressful at first. The part that you're in, you're going to be like, oh my God, this <laughs> is really, what is this game? This is so stressful, right? I'm starving and my body is falling apart. What is yeah. this? There does come a point where it stops feeling that way. And okay, it really good, is good. just this beautiful, like very human story of all of these, yeah. you know, relationships you have. And the music is used very, very effectively in a mm. way that I think is interesting because the game is all reading. There's not really right. any voice acting. And so often you're just sort of choosing how you respond to people and seeing these stories play out. But there will be these big abstract sequences in particular where your character, who is an artificial life form, can go inside of the network. And so you'll go into this network view and then suddenly you're kind of within the network connecting the space station that you're on. And there are some adventures you have that I won't spoil since you haven't played it. But there are some characters you meet and interactions you have within that space where you're disembodied entirely and they're almost abstract concepts that you're interacting with. Oh, wow. And so the writing really goes on a tear and really kind yeah. of stops being just, you know, this person is in front of you telling you, unload this ship, I need your help, and becomes yeah. just much more abstract. And the music is used so well to accompany huh. those sequences. Oh, sweet. And yeah. The timing is just really interesting because you're reading, so everyone reads at their own pace. So the right. music has to kind of float in this mm-hmm. slightly disconnected way that still feels appropriate. And it just yeah. really, really works. I do think it's wonderful. I didn't actually realize that Amos Roddy lives here in Portland, but that yeah. makes me want to go track him down and yeah. come over and record on Strong Songs too. I can't wait to listen to your episode <laughs> with him. Um, I'm sure it'll be really yeah. cool. I'm excited to interview him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, yeah, that's the other beautiful thing about, I think, media music in general is that it really does cover just so many different genres, right? So I'm I'm also going to be interviewing the Pentiment crew, the people who wrote this, you know, 15th century, (laughs) 16th century music. And used sack butts and all the things. Right. Um, So, you know, it's like just what a fun, weird you know, musical imbalance, so to speak. Of just yeah, you can really music. have your pick. Yeah. It's like, well, what kind yeah. of music do I want to talk about this week? Uh, yep. Let's kind of yep. look around and see what's out there. There's something in every style. Could use some more jazz. I mean, there are jazz albums out there for sure. There are definitely yeah. like Cuphead, obviously, being one of the most famous. Yes. But we yes. need some more jazz, I think. Agree. There's kind yeah. of, I see the word thrown around a lot. And try not to be a snob about it, but there are definitely <laughs> yeah. times where I, I get a press release or whatever, and they're like, this jazz-inflected score, and I listen, and I'm yeah. like, okay, uh, I yeah. guess. What exactly <laughs> like, do you mean by, yeah, is yeah. this really, yeah. yeah, I want a little more of the Grim Fandango, yeah, Cuphead, yes. that real stuff. Yes, um, But yeah. I always feel that way. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely delightful. I like to ask yeah. guests on Strong Songs to recommend some albums for listeners to check out mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. that's how we spread good music is we get recommendations from our friends and sometimes from podcasts. So yeah. yeah um, what are, what are three albums you think our listeners should check out? Well, I mean, I am a classical nerd. So two of them are <laughs> that one of them. Yes. Is harpsichord. As I referenced earlier, uh, yes. it's by my absolute favorite uh, harpsichordist, uh, living harpsichordist named Trevor Pinnock. And he's a British. He was a, uh, big in the 70s there was a giant movement in classical music surrounding this historically performed or historically informed performance practice you know people being like oh what was baroque music supposed to sound like Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. instruments were they using and how were they tuned and he was a part of that whole crew um 
And he's just like such a delightful human being and a, a just gifted musician and conductor and all the things. Uh, but he recorded on some um, famous historical harpsichords in France, I think, um, a bunch of harpsichord music that was written by French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau, uh, who was born uh, in right around the time of Bach, two years before that, 1683. There were, so Handel was born in 1685, mm -hmm. um, and there's somebody else, too, that was born in that year. It's like, whoa, something Big was year. in the water wow. that year. Yeah. yeah. But in any event, um, uh, the music of Jean-Philippe Jean Rameau, and it's, I mean, I love Rameau's music, um, you know, for Baroque, but, but as I was saying earlier, it's just really beautifully recorded, and so there's just this really rich, vibrant, full harmonic sound to the to the harpsichord and and it's just just so so good yeah um nice. so that's that's first i would say that's like definitely a desert island like i would never go anywhere without that if i had to you know that's you nice. kind of don't need to go anywhere i got spotify now but you know what i mean like i just i love that album yeah spotify could <laughs> could go down tomorrow and then it sure you know, could. have to pick desert <laughs> island albums again so i yep. think about that a lot yep Nice. Well, what's number two? Number two, I think I sent you uh, uh, the complete Beethoven symphonies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but again, this is this falls into that whole thing about uh, performance practice. John Elliott Gardner is the conductor, and he's playing with his um, Revolutionary and Romantic Orchestra, is what it's called. And Great. I, I want to be in an orchestra called the Revolutionary and Romantic. I know, <laughs> right? And these, you know, it's a smaller group. It's mm -hmm. it's not a full symphony, modern symphony orchestra playing right. Beethoven, which there are, the Minnesota Orchestra released an incredible cycle of all those all nine symphonies as oh, well. Nice. If, you, if oh. you're really after a modern symphony sound yeah, of Beethoven, yeah. we'll do that. You won't you won't regret it. Um, but. Uh, the, the, the thing, there's a bunch of things that I love about these recordings by John Elliott Gardner and the ORR, which is the orchestra. Um, it's like he, he kind of kicks the tempo up a notch in some ways. And okay. so some of the, some of the speeds, you're just like, wow, <laughs> that's really vibrant. You know, it just kind of mm -hmm. brings this life to it. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they're using, like, gut strings on the on the stringed instruments instead of, um, mm -hmm. you know, steel and whatever the hell, nickel or whatever they use on violins and such. But uh, it, it's just, you know, rotary trumpets and all the all the old fashioned right, things, right. quote unquote. And it 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 was to me like my having listened to all nine of Beethoven symphonies a bajillion times because he's like my dude. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, I, when I heard those recordings, I, I was just like, okay, never again. I don't need to hear anybody else ever record wow, these really? ever again. Okay. These are perfect. Like they're just perfect. Yeah. I absolutely love them. Nice. John Elliott Gardner. Yeah. I will yep. definitely be listening. Yep. Start to with these five. I mean, through. everybody is yeah. familiar with five, the first mm -hmm. movement. Everybody needs to know all of five right the second yeah. third and fourth movements are just as good it's it's just a it's a delight these recordings i think oh man 
man. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll give this a listen <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. So how about number three? Number three, I chose jazz. It's so funny because, I mean, I could have also said like Bill Withers, but because uh, I sure. do listen to other things. <laughs> uh, or I could have chosen video game music. But um, jazz, Dave Douglas is a trumpeter that, that had yeah, a yeah. really profound impact on me uh, in the 90s. He records. I mean, I swear to God, he releases mm-hmm. something every other day on his band. Extremely prolific. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just I love all the collaborations he's done, whether it's with John Zorn or whomever. Like, I I don't Mm -hmm. care. Like, it's just he's incredible. And and this album, is this also a nonette? How many people are in this band? Let's see. I can't remember. I haven't listened to this record in a long, long time. This looks like a sextet. Sex, okay. Like, I'm just looking at his band yeah. page for it. All right. So, yeah. So, so, bone, sax, trumpet. But it's a Wayne Shorter tribute, right? So, there's, like, mm-hmm. a couple of Wayne Shorter tunes right, on like there. Right, like the Speak No Evil band. I think it was also a sextet with bone, sax, and trumpet. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, it's just, I mean, and everybody on there is, is fantastic. And, yeah. I mean, that first track, I probably listened to the first track oh my god I probably listened to it a thousand times at least it's amazing I just would play it over and over and over again and the whole album is just really beautiful and I think opened my mind to a kind of a different type of jazz you know this yeah. is the 90s now we're not right. it's not fusion it's not you know it's not Chuck Mangione it's it's like this is this is what the cool kids are doing these days you know it was mm-hmm. really amazing to me he is an he is an amazing player, and yeah, I agree. He, I had that experience with him as well with his sort of late nineties, early two thousand stuff. He covers mm-hmm. that Rufus Wainwright song "Poses" with oh. I think Chris Potter is in the band at that oh, time. Yeah, this is yeah. right they around the turn of the century. And that record, the infinite, and yeah, it's it's really beautiful yeah. arranging and just a different style of jazz, yeah. despite still being super hip and super you yeah. know in the pocket and all kinds of harmonically interesting. Um, he he is just a creative guy. In that way. He is, yeah. And as a trumpet player, I feel like the, his approach to trumpet was just like not as a trumpet player. Like I mm-hmm. felt like he almost plays it maybe more like a saxophonist or something. It's like he just didn't care about what jazz trumpeters sound like when they play right. a solo. Trumpet you know? stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I just really respected that a lot in his, or I respect that a lot in his playing. Yeah, sort of direct approach to the music or something. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, his conception is very interesting. I've never transcribed any of his solos, but that would be um, I did. probably a pretty cool thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I, sections of them I did for sure. I've yeah. got bits and pieces written down in spots. He's got so yeah. many great ideas. Yep. Nice. Well, that's some some great listening for us to walk away from this episode with. This was so much fun. Everyone should go and listen to Level with Emily. Emily Reese, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll have to do it again sometime. And good luck with everything this year. Oh, thanks so much, Kirk. I really appreciate you having me. It was a total pleasure. And that'll do it for my conversation with Emily Reese. Thanks again to her for coming on the show. And yeah, just to reiterate what I said there at the end, go listen to her show, Level with Emily. It's a really cool show, tons of great conversations, and um, you will almost certainly find something that you'll enjoy listening to. All right, that'll do it for now. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show. I hope you're all taking care out there and finding some wonderful new music to listen to. <laughs>